0: Welcome back Bible readers, this is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 36. And this week we're going to be pushing through the heart of Ezekiel, um, working with chapters 15 through chapter 34. Now, to start off, chapters 15 through 17 of Ezekiel record three parables, and these are parables designed to illustrate the certainty of judgment. In other words, there's no possibility that Jerusalem could escape from judgment. So in chapter 15, we find the parable of the fruitless vine. Israel was a vine branch, but she had stopped bearing fruit. Um, fruit of righteousness. Therefore, she was useless. And the only worthiness of, vi- of a vine branch was fuel for the fire. You know, in the New Testament book of John, we're told that believers are branches that are connected to the vine who is Jesus. And the only way um, to bear fruit is if we are connected to him. But in this context here, for the nation of Israel, they were a vine that was not bearing any fruit. Chapter 16 is another parable. It's called the parable of the adulterous wife. And this is a very unique chapter because it is the longest prophetic message in the book and the longest single allegory in the entire Bible. So that's significant as far as a chapter goes. You see, God's chosen people were not only a vine that was good for nothing in chapter 15, but they had produced disgusting fruit or rotten fruit. That's what chapter 16 is telling us. And the first part of Ezekiel's parable in chapter 16 compares Jerusalem to a despised orphan who had become the beautiful wife of a king, but had abandoned her privileges to become an insatiable prostitute. And the second part of the parable compares Jerusalem and her sisters who were Samaria and Sodom. If Jerusalem's wicked sisters received judgment for sin, then how could Jerusalem, who was even more depraved, hope to escape judgment? However, Even in the midst of judgment, God offers mercy to the city, speaking of restoration towards the end of chapter 16. Now, chapter 17 is a riddle and a parable, and it's a riddle and a parable of two eagles. And without getting into a lot of details, the big picture here in chapter 17 is that the two eagles are representative of Babylon and Egypt. Neither of the eagles had been able to provide security and prosperity to Israel, uh, the prosperity that she longed for but God would succeed where they had failed. He himself would be the one to restore them. And by the way, this chapter has a bit of messianic tone to it at the end um, as far as God being the one who would restore Israel instead of Israel trying to trust in foreign alliances and foreign powers. Now chapter 18 and later chapter 33 are two of the most complete and thorough chapters in the Bible on the topic of individual responsibility. So that's chapter 18, because in this chapter, there was a proverb circulating. And the proverb's point was that the children of Israel were suffering because of their parents' sins. And by blaming God for their misfortunes, these people were denying their own guilt. And this was wrong because every individual is personally responsible to God. Ezekiel then presents three cases to prove this principle of responsibility in this chapter. The people were judged not for the sins of someone in a former generation, it was for their own sins. And now judgment could be avoided if the people repented of their sins. Now, remember, we're in the context here of the Mosaic covenant and the stipulations for Israel when she obeyed God and did not obey God. We're not talking about eternal life or salvation in that context, because eternal life salvation has always come by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, chapter 19 is a lament over Israel and her leaders. This is the first of five laments that we find in this book. And, of course, a lament was a funeral song that was sung in honor of a dead person, like we learned from Lamentations. We talked about laments. Jeremiah was lamenting over Jerusalem's death. So specifically here, the lament is for Israel's princes or Israel's kings. The nation had produced mighty rulers in the past, but now they have no king. After Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, was overthrown by Babylon, no king replaced him. And the importance here is that not until Christ returns will the ruler scepter again rise in the line of David and reign as Israel's king. Now, moving on to the next section, chapters 20 through 23. It's a final collection of prophecies that deal with the fall of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so these four are taken together. In these chapters, Ezekiel further clarifies God's motivation in bringing judgment against his people. And there is also much to say about Israel's defective leadership in these chapters. In chapter 20, the structure is very clear. The chapter consists of a review of Israel's history and God's grace to Israel in spite of her rebellion during Israel's history. The chapter opens with certain Jewish elders coming to Ezekiel to ask him to inquire of the Lord about a certain event. Um, And instead of answering their question about this event, Ezekiel gives them a history lesson. God's history lesson is compiled into four successive periods. In Egypt, verses 5 through 9. In the wilderness, verses 10 through 26. In the promised land, verses 27 through 29. And in the present time, verses 30 through 38. What God said about Israel in each of these four periods of time is quite similar. The main point was that God was good to his people, but they had rebelled against him. And this generation was no different. Judgment was coming. This time it was coming in the form of Babylon. And so Ezekiel describes the judgment of Babylon in three ways. First, by a parable that he tells at the end of chapter 20. The people didn't get the parable at first, so he explained it. Judgment was likened to a fire which would consume the entire land, a fire that could not be extinguished. The second way of describing the coming judgment was a song that Ezekiel sings in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 20. Excuse me. Of twenty one, the song declares that a sharp and polished sword would mete out judgment, or would render judgment all who will be touched by the sword. This judgment would happen in such a dramatic fashion that everyone would know that it was God who brought this upon His people for their stubborn and rebellious ways. And the third way of describing judgment is the imminence of Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Both Judah and the nation of Ammon had rebelled against Babylon, but judgment was coming to Judah first. And then later it would come to the nation of Ammon. Now as you move into chapter 22, you see that this chapter was designed to show the defilement of Jerusalem. And the judgment that was just. God was just in punishing Jerusalem for what she had become. Ezekiel pushed Uh, Two main charges against Jerusalem, the shedding of blood and making of idols. Ezekiel mentioned blood or bloodshed seven times in this chapter. Note that, seven times in this chapter to drive home the point of the city's sin of extreme violence. But the idea behind bloodshed in the Hebrew language is not solely physical violence. It has the ideas of anything that can cause harm or hurt a person. It seems that the shedding of blood was Jerusalem's primary offense, and that shedding of blood had its root cause in idolatry. You see, the pagan and and religious practices um, that God's people had adopted did not curb their abuse of other people It much much more than that. It kind of encouraged it. Um, Idolatry even promoted taking the lives of others through human sacrifice. Whenever people disregard the revealed will of God, crimes of violence and bloodshed are sure to follow. God's judgment would fall on the city. He would blow on them like a blasting wind of a furnace. And point in fact, the Babylonians actually did physically burn the city. So this judgment was not just symbolic, but it was also physical. And the final part of chapter 22 deals with the recipients of this judgment. The royal family, the religious leaders, the priests, other governmental leaders, the common citizens, even the prophets who are giving out false messages of hope, would receive judgment. The corruption was so complete that when God searched for someone to stem the tide of national destruction, for someone to stand in the gap, a famous verse from Ezekiel there, no one was found to do it. Now, in chapter 23, we're presented with another parable to illustrate Judah's unfaithfulness and the certainty of her judgment. And let me warn you, this parable has graphic material, but the message of this parable is vivid and powerful, so don't shy away from reading it. The parable is about two adulterous sisters, one named Ohola, the older sister, and she represents the capital city of Samaria, Israel's northern tribes, and then you've got Oholiab, The younger sister, who represents Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. So go one that represents the kingdoms of the north and one that represents the kingdoms of the south. The older is north, the younger is south. Now, the older sister proved to be unfaithful to the Lord by lusting after her attractive neighbor, the Assyrians. She committed political adultery by making alliance with the Assyrians, alliances which proved Uh, that would involve worshiping their idols. This was a continuation of her already established behavior from the days in Egypt. And so the Lord turns over this older sister to the Assyrians. Remember, that's when the northern kingdom gets taken captive by the Assyrians, 722 B.C. Now, the younger sister here observed what happened to the older sister, but she did not learn from her mistakes. Like we might say today that we too have a similar problem that we don't learn from history either. The younger sister becomes even more unfaithful than the older sister does. She too lusted after the Assyrians, whom she viewed as attractive political alliances. But the younger sister went a step further and saw pictures of the Babylonians that aroused her desire for an alliance with them. And so she wrote to them, and the Babylonians responded to her invitation and came to Judea, where they polluted her by entering into treaties with her. After she became a vassal of Babylon, or almost a slave of Babylon, she became disgusted with Babylon and turned away to seek help from Egypt. She wanted to go back to Egypt, the place wherein she was attracted to adultery in the first place. And a lot of Israel's idolatry, by the way, goes back to Egypt. Well, because of her unfaithfulness, judgment would come, and those who Jerusalem despised, which were the Babylonians, um, they would be the ones who would punish her. Jerusalem would be rendered unattractive to other lovers. Jerusalem would be left bare and naked after Babylon was done destroying the city. Jerusalem's affair with other nations came because she forgot the source of her protection and thereby openly rejected God. Now, Up until this point, Ezekiel has been predicting coming judgment. And I know you hear me talking about it all the time. And that judgment would fall on Jerusalem and Judah. But now, the day of judgment finally arrives in chapter 24. Ezekiel begins with... This chapter with a parable that represents the siege of Jerusalem, which we're told began on that very day, January 15, 588 B.C. On this very day, Nebuchadnezzar began his siege of Jerusalem. The parable was about a pot of boiling meat. And in the fire of God's judgment, Jerusalem's impurities would rise to the surface. Her corruption could not be hidden any longer. She was unappealing as the encrusted, rusty scum floating on the surface of meat being boiled. The meat was ruined by the scum, and so the contents of the pot, it, it was dumped out. The meat was overcooked, picturing the slaughter of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The empty pot, which is Jerusalem without its inhabitants, was to be set on the coals until its rust was burned away. The city itself had to be destroyed to remove its spiritual impurities. God's mercy prompts him to withhold judgment as long as possible to enable people to repent, but he does not wait indefinitely. A time comes when God punishes wickedness. Now, as I said earlier, judgment has long been coming, and I think we've all accepted that or expected that. But what happens next in the chapter you might not expect. God tells Ezekiel that his wife will be taken away from him in death, but he must not show any grief or sorrow for her. You can groan silently, God says, but no outward actions, no normal mourning procedures. The exiles, for all that they were blind to, they at least realized that Ezekiel's actions were abnormal and knew that his action must have a greater purpose. And so Ezekiel explains that the death of his wife symbolized the destruction of God's temple and the slaughter of God's people. The tragedy would be so great that any public expression of grief would seem insignificant. One author connects these several ideas well when he says this, Ezekiel had a right to mourn his undeserved personal loss, but he does not. The Israelites had no right to mourn for their well-deserved national loss and could not. God does not author personal tragedy. However, he can and often does use experiences as unique opportunities through which people will come to know that he is the Lord, End quote. You know, this is a pivotal chapter in the development of the book. Till now, Ezekiel had previously proclaimed the Lord's coming judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. He has systematically answered each argument against the impending judgment. Nothing remained except for the enactment of that discipline recorded in this very chapter. Now we move on to a new section in the book, chapters 25 through 32. Ezekiel prophesies against the four nations who abused Judah and mocked her during her period of judgment. These four nations would be judged for their wicked attitudes and their actions while Judah was being disciplined for her sins. Chapter 25 speaks of Judah's closest neighbors, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Ammon had united in an alliance with Judah and Tyre against Babylon, who was a common foe. But when Babylon came to attack Judah, Ammon did not show up to help. And also rejoiced over Judah's misfortune, and because of Ammon's desire to plunder and take advantage of Judah's misfortune, the same would happen to Ammon from other nations. Moab here regarded Judah as just one of the other nations, nothing special, nothing important. And this attitude reflected a disrespect for the Lord God. God would judge Moab in a fashion that they would come to realize that he alone is God. And of course you have the nation of Edom here. They had taken vengeance on the Judites rather than helping them, and for this reason the Lord promised to send judgment their way, the Philistines as well are here. They had also added scorn to the Israelites and had sought to destroy them, perennial enemies of of Israel. Therefore, the Lord would stretch out his hand against them in judgment. And let me just add this note here while I'm thinking about it. You might have heard the notion or the ideology that if we are good to Israel, then God will be good to us as a nation. Well, if you've ever wondered where that idea came from or in need of a proof text, this chapter might prove to be a good example. This does not mean, however, that we should uphold everything that Israel does as righteous. We're to treat sin like it is, no matter who the offender is. We can't excuse that. But what this passage does teach is that the mistreatment or abuse of God's people by other nations will not be tolerated and will be dealt by God in His timing. Now, chapter 26 through chapter 28, verse 19, is judgment on the nation of Tyre. And the amount of space dedicated to Tyre reflects that great significance that this region held during this day. Tyre was a major city in the region of Phoenicia to the north of Israel. Tyre's sin was her greedy rejoicing over Jerusalem's fall because now more products and goods would be shipped by sea. Tyre was a coastal uh, city here. God's judgment against Tyre would fit her crime as he vowed to bring nations against her like the sea casting up its waves. Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Tyre for 13 years until all settlements on the mainland were destroyed. Chapter 27 speaks about Tyre's allies who came to sit and mourn her passing. They also sang a funeral lament, contrasting her present condition with her former glory. And the image of a lament was that of a great ship, which is a perfect symbol for a coastal city like Tyre. Tyre's ship had gone down, and the loss of her people and her wealth is the subject of that lament in chapter 27. Now, moving into chapter 28, Ezekiel continued his message against Tyre, relating specifically here in the context to the ruler of Tyre or the king of Tyre. In fact, in verses 1 through 10, we are told about this ruler. This ruler's underlying sin was that of pride, which prompted him to view himself as a god, though he could not be because he was a man. He even thought himself to be as wise or as wiser than Daniel. God would not not let the pride of Tyre's ruler or Tyre's king go unchallenged. But now when you get to verses 11 through 19, 11 through 19 depict this king's downfall. But, and this is a big but here, pay attention. Ezekiel uses an older account to depict this king's fall, namely the account of Satan's fall. Note that this king of Tyre is not Satan. The king is acting like Satan. Satan however what is beneficial for us is that we are given kind of in a secondary manner here some additional information about satan's sin and about his original fall because it seems like satan as originally was originally a cherub uh, one who is responsible for the covering of the glory or the presence of God. Remember the mercy seat that sat atop the Ark of the Coven had two winged cherubim that covered the presence of God? And if the tabernacle was a pattern of a heavenly reality that the book of Hebrews tells us, then there are cherubim that cover the presence of God. Also, don't forget, you know, we're in Ezekiel here. Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2, or excuse me, 1 and 10, talk about the cherubim and their responsibilities are around the throat of God. Therefore, they are continually and constantly in his presence. So Satan was part of a group of supernatural beings that had the closest access to God. But it was Satan's pride that let his fall in judgment. Even someone this close to God is still susceptible to a heart of pride. Let that be a lesson for us all. And the rest of this chapter is judgment rendered on Sidon, which was a city located closely to Tyre. Sidon had been a thorn in the side of God's people for their scorn for them. Also, remember the sinful practices of Baal worship that were introduced to Israel were introduced through Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. So there's a connection with Baal worship to this nation of Sidon. Now, chapters 29 through 32 is about judgment to the south, namely Egypt. And these chapters contain seven messages of judgment to Egypt and her Pharaoh. Egypt did not help Israel when she needed it most. Egypt will be destroyed by the Babylonians. Egypt's allies will also be destroyed. Egypt would be scattered, thereby causing her to become weak. Egypt compared herself to Assyria, but even the strong Assyria fell. Therefore, Egypt's fate would also be the same. Egypt's Pharaoh and his power would also be destroyed. And then a final judgment was able to, a final uh, message of judgment talks about the certainty of Egypt's judgment. And so certain was it that Egypt's appointment with the grave was already made. Now, enough judgment for one book, right? And I know you're all out there saying, hallelujah. Let's move on to chapters 33 through chapter 48, which is the last large section of the book of Ezekiel. And these chapters speak about the future of Israel. God is not done with her yet. Israel would be judged for her sins. That's what we've been talking about in chapters 1 through 24. And the surrounding nations would also be judged for their sins and their mistreatment of Israel. That was chapters 25 through 32. But Israel will not remain under judgment forever. God has a plan and God has a future for her. So in chapters 33 through 39 are the first step in Israel's restoration, which will be a national renewal. And then the final step in Israel's restoration will be the establishment of a new order, namely the Millennial Kingdom in chapters 40 through 48. So that gives you an outline of what we're going to talk about as we finish this week and get into next week. So chapter 33 tells us that Ezekiel's original ministry of judgment was completed. So now God appointed him as a watchman for a second time. His messages still stressed accountability and responsibility, but the focus was now on the Lord's restoration of his people. And as soon as the messenger arrived from Jerusalem, telling the exiles that Jerusalem had fallen, Ezekiel opens his mouth and begins this second phase of his ministry. He begins by reminding the people that each person would be held accountable for his or her actions and responses to God's Word. See, because the Jews were still picking and choosing what they would obey instead of listening to the whole counsel of God. Well, that sounds like a lot of what many Christians do today. They pick and choose only those things that they want to obey, or those things that are easy for them to obey. But while the people may have been listening to Ezekiel, they were still bent on pursuing their evil desires, Look at what the text says in verses 22 through 33. The people were listening to Ezekiel like they would listen to entertainers, to singers, or instrumentalists. These type of people expect no change from the people that come to listen to them. All they want is their applause. But preachers or prophets who prepared messages from God's Word expect the people to change. They admired Ezekiel for his delivery and his presentation. You know, good job, pastor. Great sermon, pastor. But did not put into practice what he told them and this is the struggle of every pastor. This is one of the most pointed indictments of God's people in the Bible. When we are fairly comfortable, it's easy to listen to preaching and to critique the preacher, but do nothing about what he has said. It is essential that we ask ourselves, what does God want me to do in view of what I have just heard? And then we are to do it. Okay, enough preaching. Chapter 34. Chapter 34 lays the burden for the failing of the nation of Israel at the feet of its leaders. And so in chapter 34, Ezekiel basically lays the blame at the feet of the leaders. This chapter contrasts the false shepherds with the true shepherds. Israel's leaders had put their own interests above those of the people. They had ruled harshly and brutally and allowed the sheep to become scattered. So God said he would judge the rulers and remove them from their positions of power. What the false shepherds failed to accomplish, God will bring to pass because he will intervene personally on Israel's behalf. God will also appoint a new shepherd to tend the sheep. And this reminds me of that great psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The same merciful and long-suffering Lord who promises to restore the nation of Israel also willingly gave himself up for us on a cross 2,000 years ago so that we can be part of his flock if we but believe in him. Well, my time is gone unfortunately, and that's all that I have for this week. Take heart. We're almost done with Ezekiel, almost done with this major prophet, and then we'll get into some minor prophets, and the New Testament is getting closer and closer. Email me any questions to BibleReading at LMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.